looking at for number one, pop psychology has produced a new wave of self-help books that advocate asserting yourself, doing your own thing, taking advantage of the other person before the other person takes advantage of you, and telling anyone who does not give you what you need in your relationship to get lost. Actually, the movement is not entirely new. Arrogance has been around for some time, but there is a pathos to such a philosophy. It is the attempt of unhappy people to find some joy for themselves. Someone has told them that they will find it by ignoring the needs and wants of people around them and elbowing their way to the front of the line. But my experience in counseling such people is that when they push others away, intimidate their competitors, and disregard those to whom they have responsibility, they get to the front of the line and discover that there is no one there to hand them anything. Jesus dismissed such a lifestyle, saying that those who save their lives will end up losing them. Christ also said that those who lose their lives will save them, and the Bible is replete with statements to the effect that sacrificing ourselves and denying ourselves for some higher good will in the long run bring happiness. In other words, happiness does not ordinarily come to those who set out to be happy. Happiness is more often a byproduct. I notice that the happiest people do not have to shove and push. They do not worry about intimidating others. They are confident of their own self-worth and much of which comes from making other people happy. There are rewards for such acts. For the friend who is willing to sacrifice for you is not easily forgotten. Here is a woman whose husband has lost his job and his self-confidence. He is a bear to live with, and he has become impotent for the first time in his life. Money is curse. She clearly is not getting much from the relationship. The assertive woman who is looking out for number one may soon pull out. The long-suffering woman who believes in the value of lifelong commitments to those she loves recognizes that her husband needs her now as never before and that there are periods in any relationship when one does most of the giving. There is something about the inherent goodness of her loving that causes her to be profoundly loved by those around her. And who knows, a few years down the road, she may meet with a serious setback herself and she just may need to have something in the bank. And what of the mothers who have nursed their handicapped children for a lifetime? Are we to say that they were foolishly uninformed to put up with so much bother that they should have known about looking out for number one? Or, for that matter, what are we to say of mothers and fathers in general? Many years can go by when their relationships with their children is very lopsided. I am talking to a 40-year-old woman whose aged parents are her responsibility, and I am concerned that perhaps she is too tied to them, that she is giving too much. I don't think so, she answers. But do you really enjoy taking them to the doctors and all those chores? I persist. I suspect weak ego strength and am probing without telling her for telltale signs that she enjoys punishing herself. Her reply is filled with so much common sense and generosity that I forget my probe and am embarrassed for playing the detective. Enjoy it? Well, not if you mean pleasure in the event. Who likes sitting in a doctor's office for two hours waiting for him to tell your mother that her back pain is nothing but arthritis, that she is getting old and should expect those things? 
But if I, I enjoy it, you mean that I get satisfaction from it? Yes, I do. Lots of satisfaction. My folks gave them to me for so long, and I'm afraid I didn't give them much gratitude. Not much of anything except demands. When you're young, you don't think. So now, if I can do some things for my folks, it makes me feel good. Sure, I would rather be talking to somebody else for an afternoon. I've heard Pop's stories a hundred times, and he gets so excited and so unreasonable when he talks politics. I blow up at them sometimes, and it gets unbearable. But they have loved me for 40 years, and I figure it's not going to hurt me to tough it out a while for them, which is a roundabout way of saying that I love my parents very, very much. She is in a long line of people who seem to have little time to worry about self-image, self-fulfillment, and peak experiences. People who find their joy by investing themselves in others. The motivation for many such magnanimous persons has for 2,000 years come from a rabbi from Nazareth, who, his witnesses said, went about doing good. Not only did he leave a large body of teachings on the value of love, which does not seek its own, He was also the embodiment of such love. When all is said and done, Christ is our source for the art of of relating. From the first time you see him at the age of 12 in relationships, he is surrounded by persons with whom he forges a strong link. He opens himself in a remarkable way to a number of intimates. And again and again, we see him extending himself to take the initiative in loving others, doing favors for strangers, defending the the disadvantaged, risking himself for others when there is no possibility that he will ever reap anything from them. Jesus, of course, had divine self-confidence. It was so strong that he did not have to prove himself in every verbal contest or conflict for power. Instead, Christ expressed gentleness and generosity. His was a love that transformed a dusty little province of the Roman Empire into the Holy Land simply because he walked there. All of this is not to say that Christ was weak. His lack of aggressiveness does not mean that he was passive. The lovers of this world are not the weak ones. They are the strong. They are the builders. They are the creators. For rather than compounding the amount of hate in the world, they compound the amount of charity.